Hey guys, John Paulamy here, and uh, this is uh, what day is it, Justin? <laughs> it's Thursday, <laughs> September second. Thursday, um, the second. Yeah. So we, um, as you know, guys, uh, Justin Hewn has been on our uh, on the uh, the video series, the interview series, a couple times in the past, and all uh, he's all things uranium, as far as I'm concerned, uraniuminsider.com. He's really been, uh, you know, I'm a generalist investor and I look to people that uh, are more specialized in uh, particular areas. And I, I think he's the go-to guy that, I, that I've been going to for a couple few years now. And uh, so with things really heating up recently, if you've been following the news, um, it was just kind of, uh, we've been trying to set this up for a couple of weeks and it was just uh, fortuitous that uh, we're on a day where over the last few days, we've seen a lot of movement in the spot price. We're lucky to have Justin come on board and uh, kind of tell us what's going on or give us some insight into the uh, new Sprott vehicle and what that looks like and uh, what how that may affect uh, the future. So welcome aboard, Justin Hewn, Uranium Insider. How are you? Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your channel, by the way. I listen every weekend. Um, yeah, just to kind of, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, I had to bifurcate things a little bit because I was getting, uh, I was re realizing that some of the my views were drifting into the uh, financial stuff. So I split it up, but uh, yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the, 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 the views. Um, yeah. So having you come on board, uh, like I said, we were talking before the show start or for the video started. And I was, uh, I mean, obviously if people are following uh, a couple of things that I saw recently, obviously the Sprott vehicle is in full force. Now it's uh, doing what it's doing. Um, I think another thing that happened today is uh, I think he's a fan of mine, a guy I've known for several, well, many years, going back probably a decade. Uh, Harris Kupperman had a pretty good article about um, uh, a flywheel effect that he saw happen in Bitcoin last year, um, last summer, and it may apply to uranium uh, possibly, and I would get your views on that. But I think let's start at... Um, you know, where you currently see the market. I've seen a couple of videos that you've been on. You seem to be a little bit, a lot more bullish. And I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm not one of these rah-rah guys. I always like to try to maintain, you know, let's look at rationality here. I know you're not a guy that rah-rah stuff. You're, 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 this is what you do full-time. This is what you're in this market. You see what's going on. So what is happening? It looks like, you know, finally we're breaking free of the Sprott vehicles kicked in. So maybe you could give us a little brief overview of that vehicle, how, how it works, because in simplistic terms, I was reading the prospectus today, uh, it can get a little complicated, what the ATM thing means, and then what, how you think that's currently affecting this market. Sure. Um, I'm, I know that you've talked a bit about it too, so this might be a little bit repetitive with the, with the brief history, but they announced in April, Sprott announced in April that they'd be taking over um, Uranium Participation Corporation, which is a physical fund that was started uh, back, I think it started in 2003 and they really started, they hit the scene in 2005. And when they um, IPO'd, uh, that was one of the big signals to the market in the previous bull market, that there was financial players coming in to purchase physical uranium. Um, over the past few years, I would say that the, the fund stagnated a bit. There was a lot of frustration from investors earlier this year when um, the whole sector was really lighting up and and UPC was trading at like a 20% premium to NAV to their net asset value. And um, in their prospectus, um, when they were trading at a substantial premium to NAV for a significant period of time, they were to issue shares um, to raise money to buy physical uranium and, and they didn't. And now we know why, because this deal was being worked out. Um, I've come to find out that, that the CEO of Sprott, uh, Mr. John Champaglia had, had been working on this deal for three years. And, um, that just got done. The shareholders approved it last month, early last month, I believe, or no, I'm sorry, it's September now. This was in July that it was approved and they immediately applied for an ATM and at the market financing vehicle, which went live two and a half weeks ago and with the initial amount of $300 million. And basically the way that that works is it allows them to um, issue shares into the open market when the volume is there, when, when there's a lot of buying volume coming in. Today was the biggest buying volume that they've seen so far. Um, and today they, uh, how many shares did they issue? They issued, I think it was, no, the total volume was something like 7 million shares today. 
And I think that they issued close to 4 million in the, on the ATM and they bought 800,000 pounds just today. So um, <laughs> in two and a half weeks, they've purchased three and a half million pounds and about a hundred million has come into the fund through the ATM um, or uh, into the trust. They changed it from a fund to a trust. So when I say shares, I should be saying units, but you know, same thing. Um, they did a couple really smart things. They immediately did a reverse split to raise the price of the stock so that some funds could actually buy it just because the price of the stock went over X level, which is something he was kind of scratching his head why UPC never did. Um, they offer two vehicles now, both on the TSX. One of them is a US dollar based vehicle. So US investors don't have to deal with the you know, arbitrage between currencies. Um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's an entirely different beast than UPC. It, they are um, very sharp, very aggressive, and you know the uh, the understanding from from myself and most investors that are kind of thinking deeply about this is obviously Sprott has plenty of money invested in the space as well as do their investors. Um, you know, most importantly, so people who are investing with Sprott and then people who are um, coming into into the market or buying buying block shares via the ATM. They are also invested in uranium equities, and so Sprott has sort of created its own its own flywheel in essence. That you know the money comes into the vehicle, they issue shares, they buy pounds. Sometimes, most of the time, it's been that day, or they raise that cash and buy the next day. There's only been one day since the ATM went live that they didn't buy pounds, but so now they've got three and a half million pounds that they've bought um, since it went live, and I think they have close to twenty million in cash. Um, they're just, I mean, so far it's beyond my wildest expectations. I mean, I knew it was a big deal when they first announced it, that Sprott was coming in because um, it was kind of a, a solidifying of the theory of financial players coming to the market. And we started to kind of hear whispers about it and, and a couple of funds, about a million pounds here, about a million pounds there. Family fund in Southern California, about a hundred thousand pounds, you know, just hearing it. And then when, when we heard that Sprott was there, it was like, okay, this is actually happening. And and now we're just seeing the confirmation of that. So it's it's great to see from a uranium speculator's perspective, for sure. Exactly. I mean, that was you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I remember the participation. I mean, you're exactly right. They were frustrating people because it was like, why why aren't they their, their mandate was to go into the market when they had that uh, premium and do, and they weren't doing anything. And I know a lot of the smaller, some of the smaller producers were picking up pounds last year, or the last 18 months, whatever. And people were like, well, that's just kind of a fart in the wind, but this is a major deal. And I don't think people really understand the significance of what's going on. Um, you know, when you sit down, you think about what is the total value um, of the uranium consumed every year, if we want to call it 180 pound, million pounds a year, I don't know what volume we want to use. I think that's fair to say that. And we look at, you know, what the dollar volume would be is probably, you know, I don't know, six, seven billion dollars probably a year. I mean, to run yeah. basically 11% of the world's electricity. Um, and then I guess this is where I want to kind of trans. Well, before we leave the, 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 the talking about the Sprott ATM, one of the things I, I would like to do that I'm confused on, maybe you can enlighten me and some of the listeners is there's been questions that I've gotten about it and I just don't have time to dig into it deep enough with re doing the reading and the understanding. When they go in and buy the pounds, they have, um, the, as part of the deal, there's not a lot of this monkey business where they're just trading back between traders. They, they have certain timeframes, I think, that are mandated that the, they have to take delivery. Is that not correct? The, the time frame is actually not mandated in their perspective. Okay prospectus but um for the most part i think it's kind of just legalese like giving them the widest variety of possibilities but um i spoke with uh with john champaglia this morning and um, so far all of their purchasing has been with a 30-day settlement okay so which is why we're seeing the price move so aggressively when you know all of the like pre-production companies that were buying uranium earlier this year like you mentioned you know they bought 13 million pounds in a couple of months and it moved the price a dollar or something like that. So now we've seen true price discovery of what's what's really there for short-term delivery. Um, and the reason that they're doing the short-term delivery, well, not only because it has the effect on the price that we're seeing, but it really flushes out what's out there and sitting in a can and is available for sale rather than something that's kind of 
in delivery from production or is in the ground that can come out in you know three to six months in Kazakhstan or in Uzbekistan, for example, they can they can move pretty quickly with the ISR production. And they're hoping to not have to buy out onto the curve very far, but they really don't know. It's really going to be dependent on the volumes that come in. So if the volumes keep up like like today, um, you know, and they just, and there literally isn't pounds for sale for 30 day delivery, they're going to have to go out onto the curve. And, but I think, um, you know, I, I think the sellers that are, that are selling now are kind of waking up to the fact that this is happening and they're going to be a consistent buyer in the market. And I think that they're just going to keep raising their ask on whatever they're holding. Um, they've, they've purchased from eight different sellers. So they've had, I think, what, how many trading days? 10, 13 trading days since the ATM went live. And they purchased on 12 of those days. And out of those 12 days, it's eight different sellers. So it hasn't been just one seller, um, you know, flooding the market or whatever. It's, it's, it's been all over. So it doesn't seem that there's one particular seller that's sitting on a lot of uranium willing to let it go for cheap at short-term delivery. We're seeing th what three and a half million pounds has done with 30 day delivery. It's moved oh, yeah. the price up what, 20% in two weeks, it's substantial. And so that's kind of, you know, um, I guess the next question that segues into the next, you know, discussion point is, um, I think this has happened so fast, it's almost like the blitzkrieg. So do we really know how deep the market is? Do we know what other sellers are out there? And then how does the psychology and sediment change? Because if you are holding pounds and then you say, okay, well, you know, this may, may, this may, people may be holding back, you know, as they see the price go up. I mean, yeah. all these things come into play, I think, you know, I mean, it, it's happened so fast. It's like we, the Germans breaking through the lines and, uh, you know, on an initial, you know, it, it's like, okay, what's going on here? So, uh, but I guess my, my, my question is, is, you know, um, I know you're, you talk to a lot of folks and I don't want to get, give up your sources and stuff, but what, what's the sense from, or is there a consensus or is it just really we're just gonna have to wait to see what the what what the price increasing price drags out of the market uh or do we have or do you already kind of have a sense or folks you talk to about how deep this market is and could we see like you know a, a fairly quick quick move higher and then maybe stabilize what are you what are you thinking it, it's it's so hard to say um i mean from the people that i've speaking with even the very measured and very um, conservative folks that are uranium bulls, but aren't ever really out there, you know, cheerleading. They're pretty, they're pretty astounded at how quickly things are moving and very pleased with the way that Sprott's doing what they're doing. Um, well, we know that there's, you know, about a million and a half pounds that come into the spot in the spot market on a monthly basis, just from uh, producers, from BHP, from uranium one, from Orono, from the Uzbeks, from Itochu, um, and from a couple of other traders uh, from THK, which is Kazatomprom's uh, trading house. So there's there's a consistent small amount of supply, but based on the the volumes that that Sprott's been buying in, I mean that's insufficient to to support that. So that's a really good point that you made. I've I've always kind of made this assumption that as we see rising prices, we'll see uranium come out of the woodwork, inventory that's held maybe by Japan that they paid much higher prices for. Maybe they'll start unloading it if they hadn't have. Um, a lot of reactors come back online by the time that happens, but, you know, I think your point is, is a good one that, you know, if the price is rising fast enough, we might see that supply actually tighten, uh, in expectation that it's going to be, you know, $10 higher next month or, or three months from now or whatever it might be. Um, but I don't think anybody really knows how much volume is going to be out there and at what price. Um, but I don't, it doesn't seem like there's much belief that there's a lot of standing inventory that will come into the market at higher prices. So I think what we're seeing now is what is actually out there and buying further out on the curve is really just going to be incentivizing production. And so Sprott, from my understanding, is really going to try to strike that balance between growing their AUM, um, maintaining you know, a highly liquid vehicle that's growing in size uh, continuing to have pressure on the spot market, but also trying to buy as for as fast a delivery as possible to not have to actually incentivize, you know, 
um, bolstered production, especially from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, which would be the most likely um, to, to start doing that. So it, it's, it's very difficult to predict, but at this rate, I think we could see a, a pretty rapidly rising spot price. And we very well could be kind of at the bottom of that parabolic curve in spot price, like we saw in the previous market where you had the spot price going up, you know, a couple of dollars every week for two years. Um, I think that's entirely possible. So uh, that, that's good to uh, get into it. One thing I want to, one other question I had about the, um, what is the, I mean, this is happening in the context of the fact of not even having a U.S. listing yet. So what is the time frame that you understand for the U.S. listing for this vehicle? Um, he was saying, well, when we spoke with him about six weeks ago, he expected it to be about a six to nine month process to get the New York Stock Exchange listing by the time they file. I don't believe they filed yet. And so we're thinking that's probably a Q2 story. Um, we expect that there's probably going to be some pushback, um, you know, primarily from utilities and, and the lobbyists that utilities have in their pocket. Um, I don't know what angle they might take. Obviously, if you think of it as a, as a, a free market, you know, they're welcome to come in and buy uranium as well. And they're welcome to produce uranium. And, you know, there's no, there's nothing stopping them. There hasn't been anything stopping them, but they also could possibly make the argument that now um, this critical mineral, you know, that's, that's necessary for national security is being cornered by a financial entity. And um, we're going to be the ones that are going to be victimized by it. So I expect that they'll take that angle, but um, I also don't think that I also th do think that Sprott expected that angle to be taken as well. And I don't think that they would be going through this process and spending three years to, to, to corner this deal in expectation that they wouldn't make it possible. So they already have three other physical trusts on the New York Stock Exchange. It's highly likely. I think it's probably in the 90 percentile that it gets done. But um, uh, just from what we're seeing so far, I'm actually not even that concerned whether or not it gets done. It's it's amazing what they've been able to do on the TSX and the volumes. Yeah. I mean, at this point in time, even for a retail investor, it shouldn't be that hard to, I mean, you should, there's so many different vehicle or entities available to trade worldwide, especially Canada is not really that hard to trade. So right. yeah, I don't see that being a big problem or, or, or a, a stumbling block for people, but um, yeah. So did I read somewhere now before we get into, before we get into the real dessert section, which is the fun part, I just want to cover some of these other things, which is, um, so what is, what is, I think I read an article that there was, I have read, you know, just like you said, there was some family office or this fund over here. And I know there's some like guys that played this in the last bull market the same way. So I know there's other entities out there taking material off the market, but it's not that, not in this type of volumes, but um, I think I read something like there was some other folks contemplating doing something similar. I don't know if it was in Europe or something like there was other funds being contemplated. And then what is yellow cake going to do now? Are they just going to sit there and keep doing what they're doing, or are they going to be incentivized to maybe switch up there? And then what does Cameco do now? I mean, cause they're basically, I look at them as kind of like a hedge fund, a uranium hedge fund, because they're they don't need uranium getting away from them too far fast. I, I think with their book, the way it is right now. And it, I don't know if, what your thoughts are on some of those, because I think a lot of people go, a lot of institutional investors will just go straight to Cameco and that may not be the best way to play this. So I don't know. Yeah. I jumped around. There's like four questions in there, but feel yeah. free to answer uh, any way you want. I I'm not sure what yellow Cake's going to do at this point. As far as I know, they're, you know, maintaining their, um, their, their deal with Kazatomprom to buy $100 million worth of uranium every year. Um, it would make sense, in my opinion, if they also did something similar and, and filed for an ATM and started buying on the open market as well. Um, clearly, it's having an effect. Uh, Cameco, I think, is in an interesting situation now. Um, they don't need to buy a lot of uranium still. I know that their order book has been thinning out and they some of their, their purchases are actually purchases from their JV in Kazakhstan, from Inkai. Um, but I do think for their deliveries this year and maybe the early part of next year, they were still relying on buying in the spot market at least a few million pounds. 
Um, you know, they've always said they didn't want to be the buyer of last resort. Well, <laughs> now they've got a, now they've got a buddy to compete with. Um, and, you know, and they can buy from the spot market is, you know, up to 12 months delivery. Mm -hmm. So it's possible they can still buy some pounds, but you know, that 12 month delivery is not going to be cheaper than, than, than the short-term delivery. So, um, well, maybe in this environment, it would be for a brief period of time. Um, yeah, they're in an interesting, interesting situation. I think, I think that clearly this is going to get the utilities attention and it's likely that they'll get into mid and long-term contracting faster than, um, than we would have expected otherwise. So in that case, it's probably good for Cameco. Um, if we hear from Cameco in the next couple of conference calls that they've signed, you know, another 50, hundred million pounds in long-term contracts, that's a good sign. That means they're probably thinking about MacArthur, um, you know, which even if they announced that, let's say next year, we'd still not see full production on that until 2024. Um, so it's not really going to affect the market too much from a supply demand perspective. And for all we know, this price spike and speculation could be over by the time MacArthur River even comes online. Um, but yeah, it's, we don't really know what, what we don't really know how the, how the contracts are going to be working out now. Um, I, if I'm a utility, uh, a fuel buyer. And I'm seeing Sprott come in, I'm seeing these price moves in the course of just a couple of weeks. And I know not only A, am I likely still receiving contract deliveries that I'm paying a spot reference price on, or at least a partially, you know, 50, 60% spot reference price, but I'm also thinking about my future supply and not really wanting to pay a 60% spot referenced contract and sign that type of contract. So while I think this is going to force utilities to come to the table, sooner. I also think that they very well might not be willing to, to sign a, a, a higher percentage spot reference contract and expect, you know, in expectations of a much, much higher spot price in only a few years. So um, curious how that's going to turn out. It's possible once we get up into the 50, 60, $70 uranium range that some of these developing companies will sign fixed price contracts. You know, I have a feeling like the bosses and the Vimmies and the globals and things like that, you know, they might sign 2025 20, pounds at $65 fixed, you know, they'd probably be happy with that, especially like global with their $35 PEA um, boss has their ISR. They'd probably be happy with a fixed price contract of that. And that would protect the utilities as well. If they think that it's going to be going much higher, but obviously that's a gamble to make a fixed price contract. So a lot of questions out there. I don't have the answers to all of them, but um, I think it's clear that the financial players are here and they're, they're doing what they're doing. And I don't think they intend to slow down. Um, my observation, just to talk about not to leave Kaz Adamprom out of the discussion, my impression has been that since they have been more of a new, the, the, the more um, maximize the asset attitude, let's call it that, instead of the old Soviet five-year plan attitude, um, they seem to have been the fear seems to be dissipating that there's going to flood the market. I mean, they're actually, um, I think they reaffirmed or even the growth is not going to be there that people thought, I mean, just for several other reasons, besides just if they're trying to maximize their position, I mean, they've had COVID things and supply issues with sulfuric gas, all kinds of things. But I mean, what's your impression of uh, Kaz Adam prom over the last, you know, year, two years. And wh what do you think, what are you hearing? Like what, what they're thinking? Cause you had to talk about them. They're 40% of the market or yeah. whatever they are, 40, whatever they are. So. Yeah. 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 Um, cause Adam problem. Yeah. You're correct that they did confirm that they do not plan on increasing their production out through 2023. And their, their take is that they're claiming they're not getting the market signals to do so. Um, of course, did that change in the past couple of months or in the past couple of weeks? I don't know. Um, I tend to believe that there's also more going on there for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we haven't seen them increase their investments in their um, well field development in terms of actual spending. So, um, you know, at least that speaks for the next 18 months and beyond really the, those ISR wells, they kind of, they peak at about 18 to 24 months from the well field development. So if they're saying 2023, we know they're not putting the money in the ground right now to increase production. Um, it's also generally expected that, you know, these ISR well fields, they, they usually go after the low hanging fruit first and there's high grading, just like in the oil business and 
Um, so we do expect that even if they did want to ramp up production, they definitely could, but it's not like they're going to ramp up 20 million pounds a year and that'll be indefinite production. You know, they ramp production, they hit their overall peak pretty quick. And then there's a long slide down um, kind of at the end of this decade and beyond. The other thing that was really curious was the, the conference call for the second quarter where there was no mention whatsoever of their CEO stepping down. And then it was, was it the next day or two days later, they announced that he was stepping down and they didn't even discuss it in the conference call. It was really quite strange. And, uh, and it was a very short time frame too. It was like, yeah, he'll be out in seven days or something. It was, it was very odd. So that's usually not a great sign, um, especially at kind of at the forefront of this bull market. Uh, so I don't really know what's going on there. But I mean, because Adam Prom, they, they are and will remain the largest producer. They're the most consistent. Um, they, they, they're very reliable in their production. They're very reliable in their sales. And they're obviously going to be a major player here, you know, going out into this bull market. But as far as will they ramp up? I mean, they just can't ramp up fast enough with, with the price uh, prices moving in this way. And um, even if we get into the 40s and maybe even 50s by the end of the year, and they start putting money, well, that's winter time. They do very little well, well field development in the winter. But as soon as they could, let's say next spring, start pouring money into well field development, that means mid to late 2023 is when we really start seeing the production from that effort. So it's it's not that it's irrelevant. It's just that it's not a market killer, in my opinion. Interesting. And I, I agree with that. Um so let's get into some of the porn that people want to. And what I'm saying on that is like, I saw, um, like I said, I, I've known Harris Kupperman. He runs a hedge fund. He's been, he's all over the internet um, or the fin twit. And he, he made a lot of money in the last uranium bull market. And he kind of took a position, I think about a year ago and then dumped it. Cause it really didn't do anything. Uh, he's not a big, he made a lot of money in junior mining earlier in his career, but he swore it off just because, you know, <laughs> it's a horrible business as you well know, <laughs> I mean, right. uh, uh, it can be good in you know, certain periods, but it's not, uh, typically a very good business, but he came out with a pretty good article on his website. I think it actually got picked up by zero hedge. I saw it on there and it's been flying around FinTwit. But, um, as we were talking before the show, I mean, he had a similar thesis last year with the, um, uh, grayscale Bitcoin trust situation where it kind of developed a flywheel. They were hoovering up all of the Bitcoin. And uh, I mean, his thesis uh, seemed to have played out last year with Bitcoin and, uh, you know, made a lot of money and then dumped it. And he kind of came back with a um, similar type thoughts about, if you want to call it the flywheel where, you know, um, price, the sprot thing causes, you know, price action to the upside, which creates more interest, which creates more funds flow, rinse and repeat. And it just, you know, then we, we know the story. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I keep going back to this where I think it's possible to really have a, a really wild move in this thing. And I don't, I don't, and I'm, I'm normally fairly conservative, but here I am watching natural gas at $4 and 60 cents an MCF. Here I am looking at thermal coal, which is supposed to be going away at, you know, 10 year highs. I'm looking at um, 10 year, 13 year highs in Gazprom stock price. So anything's possible right now. And this thing has been beaten down for so long. And I look at a chart. When I look at a chart, I pulled up a 20 year chart the other day that encompassed the last bull market. And I'm looking at this huge bowl, uh, at, you know, that we are basically emerging from now, this long period of consolidation breaking out. And I'm thinking to myself, would you really want to be short that uh, chart over the next, you know, year, two years, three years? And, you know, the answer is obviously no. So what, what let's kind of get into that. Cause that's kind of like the big flavor of the day, sure. you know, with, you know, with the kind of funds flows we're seeing, I think there's a kid, uh, I, mean, I don't know if he's a kid, a guy on, he's actually created a little Google docs thing. that's tracking all of the inflows and everything. I saw him on yeah. Alex, Alex, Weinstein. Alex Weinstein. Yeah. I don't know how accurate it is, but uh, it seems to be pretty cool. I'll put yeah. that in the show notes. But there's interest is building, I guess what I'm saying, you know, tremendous pressure is building behind this. So, and then we, you know, then I'm going to just, you know, segue into, 
you know, Finn Twit obviously is very incestuous. You're in it. You're, we're all the same guys talking to each other sometimes. But the, if this thing gets out to the Wall Street bros and some of these other things, I mean, I think Dogecoin still, you know, several, you know, tr- billions of dollars of value in some of the uh, in some of these companies. You know, I mean, you get a funds flow into this thing into a market that's currently maybe you know 180 million pounds at 40 bucks a pound. I mean, that's still eight billion dollars, seven to $8 billion, nothing in the scheme of things. And if 20 or 30 or 40 billion came into this thing by the end of the year, which, you know, price action begets, draws attention. So then, it, you know, you create that flywheel. I mean, what's your thoughts on, on something like that? I, I, like I said, I, I, this is pure speculation. Anybody that's listening, this is not what I think I'm expecting necessarily to happen. I don't think we have any clue what's going to happen. It's unknowable right now, but what are your thoughts on something like that? Because your mind goes there. You start thinking, there's, this is not a big market cap uh, market. And uh, Doug Casey, you know, a gold bull market is the Hoover Dam going through a, a fire hose. You know, a uranium bull market is the Hoover Dam going through a drinking straw. So uh, thoughts? Yeah, it's absolutely true. There's just not that much to buy. There's 60 something stocks right now. And um, when real money, which we have not even seen yet, I mean, this is not real money coming into the space. This is, this is retail hopping back on. I do think there's, there's more retail involvement right now than there was in the past two weeks, which I, I sort of thought that we were seeing, um, because the sentiment in retail was still pretty low, even as Sprott started to buy, but the stocks were starting to recover. So I, I sort of had the theory that that was, um, some some potential smart money institutions actually doing some buying in the open market. Um, it's there, there's so many there's so many separate flywheels that are all connected. <laughs> it's funny because we have a, a section in our in our monthly letter every every month called the flywheel effect, and we usually attribute that mainly to the ETFs um, because you know as you know the money that comes in or out of the ETFs they they issue shares they buy back shares and. They, they expand, they contract, and it has like a secondary effect on the whole sector for the most part. And the cool thing, <laughs> I don't know if it's a cool thing, but the crazy thing about the move that we've seen this week and, and that started last week is the ETFs really hadn't, um, there wasn't much share issuance happening until yesterday and today, a little bit URA started issuing some shares. So um, we're, we're now we're going to see after these things are up 25, 35% over the course of three days, uh, the ETFs are going to start nibbling away at these things, um, just hitting the ask, you know, wait until the end of the day <laughs> and then they just hit the ask. So um, that's one flywheel, flywheel with the ETFs. Another one is just like you mentioned, um, Harris government's article being picked up by Zero Hedge and then that gets shared here and it gets shared there and more people hear about it. And it, it creates kind of like a snowball there. Um, and then obviously Sprott is kind of a flywheel in and of itself. It's growing its AUM. It's bringing in more money. It's directly, and, and to your point about, you know, the uranium squeeze thing that's being passed around and the silver squeeze that, that happened or tried to happen um, and with these short squeezes, I, it, it's a very real possibility that that can happen here when they start to recognize that that means actual buying of physical uranium when you buy this stock. So it's, we've got multiple flywheels happening here and I, I definitely don't think we go up in a straight line and I would say probably the biggest, the biggest hurdle that we're going to have most likely is some type of broad market type correction, but that's also very difficult to predict because the fed just keeps going for it. And, and the thing just keeps climbing, and, you know, just this melt up, this never ending melt up. And it's been a painful thing to try to short it, which I haven't, but um, you know, there's probably going to be a time to hedge, maybe a time to trim if this thing gets really wacky before we have a correction, you know, let's say in the next three to six months or something like that. But generally speaking, you know, these types of markets get really crazy towards the end. And so I think that um, weathering the storm, if we do get a big broad market correction and coming out on the other side of that for hopefully multiple years of commodities run, um, uranium included is, is kind of what we're, what we're shooting for here, what we're along for the ride for. Yeah, I, I concur. And I mean, a couple of things that you said there that I just kind of want to expand upon. One of the main questions I get, especially from a lot of new subscribers, I'm a generalist, obviously. I We have a lot of things going on in our newsletter. Probably only have like four or five uranium names, but um, they've done fairly well for us because obviously we're <laughs> in three years ago. But 
Um, I remember talking to Trader Ferg. We were actually, while we were talking, buying Paladin at like less than 10 cents or something while we were on our call one day. I mean, I think, I don't know what's trading at now, but anyways, like seven, 50, 60 cents, something like that. Anyways, um, one of the major things I get from people is they see how, because um, I'm obviously the market is way overvalued. I'm talking about in general now. Mm -hmm. um, we had a really big move um, on the reflation trade, I call it. You know, I've kind of put forward a thesis that I thought that um, we would have this reflation trade. And I thought that would, the Fed would kind of pull back and that would cause like a deflationary scare early into the growth scare early into next year. But I'm like you, I don't see them taking their foot off the pedal at all. And um, I guess that's one of the things I get questions a lot as well. Is it too late if I get in? I mean, all these things are unknowable. But, you know, I mean, we can sit here and say, you know, um, I went, I've studied history. I put in a video, you know, talking about like Japan, you know, it got to a cape of 100, you know, and when it was at 50, it was overvalued. And it was at four, a cape of 40 was overvalued, but still doubled again. So, I mean, it was just like, you, you don't know how crazy some of these markets can get. And I mean, I, to steal another Harris Kupperman term, you know, Project Zimbabwe is in effect. I mean, you, if, if the liquidity that's really powering the general market and a lot of these asset bubbles is continuing, I mean, at this point, can they really stop it? I mean, it's, you know, you're trying, I, mean, I don't want to say there'll never be a correction because there will be. And we just had one over the summer in commodities. You know, we had a little, yeah um so-called tough talk back in june and you know i was looking at uh, all the re uh my tracking software that tracks everything it's like you know basically didn't do it went sideways or down for the last you know couple months and now looks like the commodity resource thing starting to in general not just uranium right. so i would tell people you know um you, you're not going to time these things perfectly you, you know if you if you didn't we, if you didn't understand the thesis three years ago or two years ago or even a year ago, and it has a, it's not completed its journey. I, I pointed to a chart. I did a video about a couple of months ago. I think I showed a chart of like Forsyth or some, one of these companies from the last bull market. And I showed the fact that in its journey over the four years, four or five years, that it basically went parabolic. I mean, there were like three or four, 50% or more corrections in the stock. So those would have been times that if you didn't understand what was going on fundamentally, you would have sold. And then when, and this is the question I ask people, after you sell, because you're anticipating this crash, when are you going to get back in? What's your trigger? Because what you find is people are, well, it'll go lower, it'll go lower. And then the next thing you know, the train starts leaving, and you're waiting for this to come, come in so you can buy back in. So I think one of the things I tell people, and just get your uh, view on this, because a lot of people ask this question, because there's you know constantly new investors and speculators coming in. Um, I say, look, if you want to do that, buy yourself like a core position, maybe, and that's something you're just going to try to ride the whole thing until the fundamentals change, whatever your thesis is on uranium. And then if you want to trade around that with some other capital, but you, I just don't think you just want to be completely trying to trade this thing in and out, in and out. I just think it, that it gets too difficult to do that. I mean, what's your thoughts on this? Because I think this is this is going to be a multi-year situation. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Um, I I mean, I really think it has a lot to do with with the individual and what yeah. they're. Um, if you're really really sharp and astute technical trader, and that's your thing, then you know obviously go for it. Um, for me, I I feel far more stress or let's say tr in investing pain by missed opportunities than I do by weathering drawdowns. Um, I don't know if that's a strength or not, but when, when things are really volatile and they're selling off, it doesn't really bother me that much. And maybe that's because I have a comfortable position size. Maybe it's because of my level of confidence from like doing this every single day. Um, but you know, when you, anytime you sell, you're creating a tax event. That's one thing. Um, and then if you're selling, that's based on a technical signal, then you have to follow some other technical signal to get yourself back in. And if you're selling, um, simply because you think it's going to go lower, but the fundamental situation hasn't changed or is in fact improved as we had this summer, how do you decide when to get back in and things move so fast with uranium, um, in both directions, but especially when they go up just because like you mentioned, it's such a small market. So if you hadn't timed 
trading in and out over the last couple of months and you just you know turned off your screens in june and just turned right back on you're basically flat or even up you know five ten percent from from the highs of the summer before the couple months of of selling off so it's it's i don't try to trade this market um i basically take a buy and hold approach um i haven't put all of my investable wealth in uranium so if there is uh, something that comes along where there's a 20 to 30% sale and I want to add, I do. Um, so I'm not ever actually all in. Um, you know, I, I have some diversification. I have some oil. I have some precious metals, which has been a little bit painful. Um, I have a little bit of cryptocurrency, but it's mostly uranium. But again, I, I'm buy and hold and buy on, on weakness until I see a reason to get out of an individual company for an individual company reason. Or, um, or, or a sector-wide you know, situation that want, causes me to, to trim or get out of everything. But for the most part, for the most part we, we treat uh, individual positions individually. And I don't recommend trading around, around these things just because the volatility is so great. And you have to time it really well to even take advantage of that dip, considering that you have to uh, take a tax event on the sell. So it's tricky. Yep, Some people indeed. do it really well and more power to them, but it's just too stressful for me. I don't like getting out and then feeling the, the pressure to get back in at a cost that, that made my trading out of it make sense. Exactly. And I think a lot of that comes from, like you said, um, you kind of didn't say it without, you said it without saying, uh, saying the word, but I mean, if you, you really, anybody that's just listening to this conversation that it's like, yeah, I've saw the price movement and I was on Twitter and it looks like something's happening here. You really have to do some homework to understand. I, I tell everybody this, don't just buy these things uh, or get involved in any of these markets um, unless you really know what you're doing. Write it down, do some research. I mean, it, this thing's not going to run away. I mean, I mean you can go on about investing theory and stuff like that or but everybody, like you said, everybody's different. But if you have the conviction in the in the in the thesis because you understand it, because you've studied it, because it makes sense to you, the supply demand dynamic that we've been talking about ad nauseum for a year, couple few years, is now you know being lit on fire with this catalyst of this you know potentially with this uh, with this vehicle. Then you don't just do it because Justin and John said that that's you know sounds good. You really should understand that, and I think that gives you the conviction to sit through like this summer and just watch, you know, things just melt because, you know, everybody's on vacation. Basically the thesis didn't change. The reactors are still being constructed. There's no mines being constructed. Nothing really changed except for probably liquidity kind of dried up. And, you know, there was no uh, news, if you will, to, to drive anything. So that, that would be my uh, view on this, uh, on the same thing. I mean, it was the same thing, like in the, some of the runs we've had in some of the coal stocks, people were like, well, coal, you know, uh, it's up, you know, as a, well, you know, I mean, what's your, you know, if something's trading at an all time high, uh, the underlying product, at least, you know, you know, why are you buying it? Because somebody on Twitter said, or because you actually understand what's going right. on. So anyways, um, yeah, enough said on that. So I kind of wanted to drift into a couple of questions, not get into individual stocks, because I'm not a believer in giving away things for free. Anything worth doing should be paid for, in my view. Uh, and there's a lot of cheap Charlies out there, but I would like you to talk about, um, in general, if you would, I get a lot of questions and I don't, I'm not as big on this as a lot of people are some more famous people that talk about this jurisdictional risks. Obviously they do exist, but I mean, how much does this, does this play into what, what, when you're analyzing the, like we talked about, there's like 60 some odd companies that are, you know, you can buy, they're not all investable, obviously, but what's, what's your methodology how do you go through this list and how do you determine what's investable and what's garbage and 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 what goes into that it's jurisdictional risk i'm sure capital i mean i don't know what, what what's your what's your uh, way of doing things sure um i mean we're 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 mainly looking for um a mix of a number of factors but obviously just trying to beat the market trying to to generate some alpha over let's say simply buying the ETFs, which is totally fine for anybody who wants exposure, but doesn't want to do a lot of work and take the risk of the individual stocks. But we, we recommend a basket of 10 positions. And um, we really like companies that can further their projects and grow as a company 
without the uranium price moving. So companies that have individual uh, company catalysts, we really, really like those companies. Um, there's a lot of companies out there and not to, not to knock them, but there's a lot of companies out there that are just sitting on an asset that was proven out a decade ago, and they're just waiting for the uranium price to rise. And, and they're not staying in the news flow, or they're not remaining relevant in the eyes of the market. And so that's, that's one big thing for us is, is companies that are, that are doing things. We really like that um, and are ideally doing them in a way that's not too dilutive to shareholders because obviously action, you know, typically in the mining industry costs money and dilution is always part of that part of that game. But if they're doing something that's really a creative, then, you know, it's it's a, it's something that you could you can accept. <clears throat> um, jurisdiction, we like projects that are in jurisdictions that have some history of supporting uranium mining. I think we, we don't really like to make gambles, I guess, in, in any way, and jurisdictions is one of them. So um, we don't like to gamble. Personally, we don't really like to gamble on explorers, um, although an explorer that's well-run that makes a discovery during a bull market is probably going to be amongst the biggest winners during that bull run. So that's, you know, but it is more of a gamble. You don't know if they're going to hit, and you really have to do the work to find out who's on that team, how long have they been going after this thing? What have they, what have they figured out so far? Um, we, we own a couple of explorers that have already made discoveries um, or, or have uh, something unique about their projects and have a team that we really like. But in general, we don't really go after the, the gamble type explorers. Um, we, we take a pretty close look at share structure. We think that that's something that is widely overlooked by investors and it's not um you know it's not an end-all be-all like there's definitely some good companies that high, have higher share counts especially on the asx because it just seems like that's kind of their thing um so it's not just the share count but it's the um it's it's the ratio of outstanding warrants and options to the uh to the outstanding shares and so there's there's a company i, I don't want to mention any names but there's a company that we sold uh last year uh, about eight, 16 months ago. And it was the company hadn't progressed in the way that we thought, but we also kind of started to recognize, no, it, I remember what it was. They did a raise that was so dilutive, that was so poorly timed with full warrants. And then shortly thereafter, they issued a bunch of options to the managers. And um, we, we came to realize that 50% of, of the outstanding share count they had an options and warrants. So for example, let's say they had 500 million shares outstanding. They had 250 million outstanding options and warrants. And in a raging bull, the, the fund flowing into that stock will kind of plow through those options and warrants and it'll help to cash up the company. But if the buying pressure isn't significant enough, it's a really big overhang for a company a lot of times because you have, you have the warrant holders actually doing like a gypsy swap, you know, selling the common share to buy the warrant to exercise the warrant and sure enough that that company that we sold has really underperformed since then and it's not because it's they have a bad management team necessarily it's not because they have bad projects it's just I, mean, I really believe that 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 share structure has really been a drag on the stock price so we we take a good look at that and then obviously we like um we like to look closely at the management and you know insider ownership and what the management has done in the past and do we feel that they're genuinely looking out for shareholders and there's some exceptions to that you know we own some companies that have uh, one company in particular that has just a, a killer asset that it's just it's a must own based on the asset itself and it's a market darling um, the management are absolute pigs they are at the trough uh, just burning through cash like it's toilet paper and it's it's really terrible <laughs> but um, but it's it's the must own and it's done well and it will do well. So we, we make some exceptions. There aren't hard rules for us, but some mix of all of those elements is usually what we look for. And so far we've outperformed the URA uh, by about three and a half times. And that's, that's pretty good for us. Yeah. I'd say we haven't even really got going here. Yeah. So um, I think that kind of underscores or been going at this for a while. I don't want to take too much of your time, and, but um, okay. The uh, that kind of underscores things that you know. There's a difference between, I mean, 
this is like the segment that you've carved out this niche where you, you, and you know, your team, you, this is what you talk about. This is what you do. This is what you cultivate. So that's how you're able to outperform by three and a half times, you know, URA, uh, you know, even in a market that really wasn't, you know, on fire yet. So um, this is what I would encourage people to think about. You know, you've mentioned a couple things, you know, if you're, if you kind of get the thesis and, but you know, you have a job and little kids and you're trying to remodel your house you want to take advantage of this, you know, that's why I tell people, you know, the ETFs are fine. P participate via the ETFs. You're not going to get burned. I mean, I would stay away from URA. I mean, there's two other ones, one in Canada, one, you know, people can look them yeah. up. URNM um, and yeah. uh, HURA. Yeah. And uh, so that's a good way to go. You're not going to, or you could just go buy the actual physical uranium. There's nothing wrong with that either. Um, I mean, I bought, was buying gold when it was $300 an ounce. It's had a good kager for the last, you know, 20 years. So that's, you know, but if you really want to, I think you have a position in your portfolio where you're trying to generate real alpha and wealth. Um, then I think that if you don't have the time and the ability, then I think you, th there are, I mean, as you, I think you share the same view. I mean, you're not, I've seen all of your, since you started your publication, I don't like to call them newsletters. Let's call it research, you know, service because Newsletters have this sleazy connotation, which there's a lot of sleaze out there. Right. But I mean, results speak for themselves. I mean, there will be a time when the uranium bull market's over and then, you know, there'll have to be a pivot or move on. I mean, it's not a perpetual bull ad infinitum on uranium. It's at some point it will not be in a bull market anymore. So, um, right. but I think, you know, if people have a portion of their uh, funds that they want, that's the only way you have to go. You have to find somebody that, or find a, a service or find something that you can trust. Uh, and that, uh, and I'm not marketing this for you. I'm not getting any kickbacks, but I, I would recommend folks if that's what they're interested in. I mean, that's kind of what you do. And I think, you know, you, the research is in depth and uh, that's the way to go. Otherwise, you know, if you're just going to go out there and you're a nine to five guy and you think you're going to be able to figure all that out, I think you're going to have a hard time. I mean, I knew, I can just tell by some of the clues on like a couple of things, the companies you're talking about, but I don't even know all the companies you're talking about because I don't, I'm just a generalist myself. So um, this is kind of a chance for you to plug what you're doing. But I, like I said, I'm not marketing your, your, your uh, service for you, but I, I think that since I've known you, which has been going on like three or over three years, I think, um, I mean, I think you've been at the forefront and I, I, I'm really, uh, I, I can fully endorse what you're doing. Uh, I don't think you're sleazy or, or I think people get real value in what I've seen just people commenting on. They, they think your service is terrific. So thank you. Feel I appreciate free, that. Free yeah. to, uh, any way you want what you guys are doing and what you got going. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And congratulations to you as well on your publication. I think it's fantastic. I've had some big winners from you and I know you've, you've done, you've done really well with a lot of your positions too, uranium and oil and copper and, um, definitely recommend have recommended you to a lot of people as well um yeah i mean we we basically we put out a monthly newsletter that's really in depth um that's kind of the primary um, our primary offering we do a number of intra-month bulletins that we that go out as well via email that are more actionable they have um, um usually they're timely based on some some market moving action or a company catalyst that's has some meaning to us as investors, that's more timely that can, they can't wait for the monthly letter, let's say. Um, we usually send out, you know, two or three of those a month. Of course, it depends on the month. Um, we have a focus list of 10 positions. Like I mentioned, um, we are up about 350%, I think, since, um, since inception, which was two years ago. So that's, we're really pleased with that. Um, and then we, uh, we do, we're starting to do these live uh, member only webinars. We did one a couple about a month ago and had really, really good feedback from that. That was really nice because we can take questions directly from our members and, and go in-depth speaking, which is so much faster than writing. And so we can um, get into the nitty gritty of the sector and get really detailed with that. So I think that's a nice value add that we're, we've just started doing. And, and also just primarily, you know, like you said, it's, it's a very complex sector and it's very difficult to distill down what's going on in the sector into what that means to you as an investor. So that's our primary purpose is to take all of the swirling information and, um, and, and try to help people make decisions on, on their investments without actually giving, you know, financial investment advice, but saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we recommend. 
um, and just trying to take all of that information and distill it down into something that's more easy to digest and understand and, and what it means as an investor. And, you know, as you well know, it's just, you, you can't get these outsized returns without that volatility. And so um, we got a lot of thank yous because the, the first um, webinar that we did for our members was like right at the bottom. It was right at the, you know, right. I think it was late July, even early August couple of weeks away from from sput starting up and um we had, we we're getting a lot of member emails and we're like hey what's going on you know everything's selling off what's the deal and 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 we put out a bulletin it was called the uranium sector gut check and we kind of went into the reasons why what we were seeing didn't worry us you know everything was coming down a low volume there we weren't seeing redemptions from the etfs etc cetera, etc cetera. you know Sput was just around the corner then we did this webinar and it really, especially now, since we're seeing these stock moves, it really feels good to know that we, we help some people hang on and not get shaken out. And now they're, they're, they're nicely up just over the course of even a few days, how quickly this can turn. Um, so yeah, that's, that's our primary offering. It's, it's really, it's really been an awesome experience. Um, met so many great people and, and it's a fun sector to, to be in, especially when things are going up. It's not so fun when they're going down, but in general, I think um, we're, we're in, you know, maybe the second or third inning of, of probably a pretty good run here. So thanks for your kind words. I appreciate that. And it's, it's been great to get some, some accolades from, from our members as well. We, we like that we've been able to help. Outstanding. So where can, I mean, it's right above your head, obviously, uraniuminsider.com. But where else? I know you're on Twitter. You're pretty active on Twitter also. Uh, where can people find you if they want to follow you and get a flavor of what you're doing? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, uraniuminsider.com is our website. Um, there's a contact email there. If you're interested, we can send you a sample newsletter. Um, go ahead and send us an email through that contact form. And yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, I get a lot of direct messages. I do my best to respond to them when I have the time to do so. But there's a lot of good interaction just on the threads on Twitter. Um, Twitter's a really cool resource for the most part. Um, I don't always agree with the way that they do things, but um, there's a great community, an investing community, and in a lot of different sectors on there. So whatever your thing is, there's probably an investment community that you can find on Twitter, and that's been a great experience there for a few years now. So yeah, through, through Twitter or through the website. Okay, great. Um, just to expand on that, I mean, I know we're winding down. I want to wind, I got another call I got to get on, but um, I keep telling people, get on Twitter and, and curate a, a fo follow people. I mean, there's people out there. I mean, you'll find guys that are managing money or smart people that are retired money managers, successful people in the business. And most of them, I mean, some of these people might only have a few hundred followers or 1500 and you DM them and you get into this conversation, you're like, well, should I reach out to this guy? He probably won't respond. People are, I mean, pretty freely uh, share information and are happy to discuss things. That's what I've found. And it's been a big, uh, a big help to me. I mean, I try, try to follow the Charlie Munger axiom, you know, I mean, I can't invent it all myself, you know, so take the best that I can from these other folks and uh, get, it helps generate ideas and then dialogue. It's been, I mean, you stay away from the politics and the uh, ivermectin uh, uh, conversations. You probably uh, focus <laughs> on uh, <laughs> and focus on uh, investments uh, or investing in, in stuff. I, I think it could be, a, like you said, it's a tremendous tool. So anyways, it really is. yeah, it really is. It's yeah, accelerated I mean, just, my, my learning exponentially. hundred percent. Yeah. You, you have kind of direct access to some real heavy hitters in the space, you know, in, in any investing space. Uh, not that you necessarily that they'll answer your direct message. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but you can interact through the threads and you can, you know, what I do, have you ever used the tweet deck? Uh, no. a, so if you go to tweetdeck.twitter.com and log into your account and you can, you can set up this like horizontally scrolled screen where you have your homepage. That's just your, your Twitter home thread and then you can um, set certain accounts or certain hashtags and it updates in real time just all across the screen. Oh, wow. It's, it's a really, really cool resource. So I use that frequently. So obviously, you know, the hashtag uranium and then I've got my half dozen or so Twitter accounts that um, of just the really sharp people in the space and 
whenever they post something, I see it right there. And you can also set notifications on the regular Twitter app um, and set the alerts whenever somebody that you're following, you know, posts something. And it's a great way to keep updated um, and, and connect with people. So pretty much, I mean, almost everybody that I'm connected with now, that's kind of my inner circle of resources that I now at this point, we all know each other. We have phone calls and, and we meet, you know, um, digitally pretty frequently and, and, and speak over the phone, but you know, the, all these people I met on Twitter or most of them. And so it's, it's, it's a really cool, really great investing space. Yeah. Exactly. Community. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, like I said, we kind of lucked out that we just hit this, uh, when everything got hot. So this will be good, uh, for, I know folks, uh, like listening to you. And like I said, you've been getting a lot of success. I'm seeing you all over the place. I, I've always said that when I see you get interviewed on CNBC about uranium, I'm selling. That's when I'm uh, hitting the bid. So <laughs> I, I guess I need to fi figure out a way to just let me know. Just DM me when you get a CNBC <laughs> invite, a little insider information, but uh, that'll be the time to bail or even if you get on BNN. So anyways, right. uh, it's coming, I know. So all right, man, uh, appreciate Thanks, it. Guys. Continued success and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Always good talking with you. All right. Great.